0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Cecile Kuznets, who teaches at Bard College, here to talk about her new book, YIVO and the Making of Modern Jewish Culture, Scholarship for the Yiddish Nation, published in 2014 by Cambridge University Press. Cecile, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to speak with you.
0: I'm glad to have you. So before we get into YIVO specifically, maybe give us a little background. Uh, in the late 1800s, Millions of Jews are living in Eastern Europe, uh, but there are movements afoot, right? People are familiar with Zionism, but maybe not as much with diaspora nationalism. What what is that? Well, as you
1: said, in the late 19th century, there was a rise in nationalist movements in Central and Eastern Europe, and Jews were uh, one of the groups that participated in these movements and created their own nationalist movements that tried to formulate a new vision, really, of the Jewish people and Jewish culture, not so much based around religion, but based on the idea that the Jews were a nation defined in more secular terms. And while for most peoples in Eastern Europe, they developed one stream of nationalism, Jews developed two major streams. The one, as you said, that most people are more familiar with is Zionism, which wanted to create a Jewish homeland and concentrate the Jews in one geographic territory principally in their historic homeland in the land of Israel, although there were offshoots of the movement that tried to create Jewish homelands in other areas. And most Zionists also saw the revival of Hebrew as the Jewish national language as a key element of creating this modern Jewish culture that they envisioned. On the other hand, there was a parallel stream of Jewish nationalism that didn't want Jews to pick up and relocate and concentrate in one territory but to remain where they were living primarily in in Eastern Europe but also throughout the diaspora and to look for ways to strengthen their identity and their rights throughout the throughout the diaspora as a minority group and also to build a modern largely secular culture not around the Hebrew language but around Yiddish which was the vernacular language, the traditional language that Jews spoke in Europe, and that a large percentage of Jews in Eastern Europe continued to speak into the 20th century.
0: Hmm. So how was Yiddish used and and viewed at this time?
1: Well, traditionally, Yiddish had a low status within Jewish life. Uh, Most Jewish communities throughout history were multilingual. So Hebrew had a kind of privileged place as a language of liturgy, of the Bible, of scholarship, but it wasn't a language that was spoken and it was only known well really by a minority of highly educated, almost exclusively male scholars, who would use it, uh, as I said, to to read and in some cases to produce Jewish scholarship, Other people would read, let's say, the prayer book in Hebrew, but not really understand it. But at the same time, most Jewish communities created their own local vernacular language, which was different from the language of their non-Jewish neighbors wherever they were living. And it incorporated elements of the non-Jewish vernacular along with elements from Hebrew and Aramaic. And so Jewish communities throughout the world created their own vernaculars. This included Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-Persian, Judeo-Tatar, and what tended to happen in most communities in the modern period when Jews became more exposed to non-Jewish culture, they began to learn the languages of the countries where they were living. So, for example, in Europe, German or French or further east, Russian and Polish became the language that educated Jews kind of aspired to learn and to use, and many Jews switched from using their vernacular to the the non-Jewish language of the society where they were living. What was unusual about Yiddish is that in the late 19th century, as Jews were undergoing this process of modernization in Eastern Europe, many Jews did switch uh, from using Yiddish to using Russian, let's say, or Polish. But on the other hand, there was a parallel movement where Jews looked to Yiddish, which, as I said, was traditionally had a low status as a vernacular language and said, you know, let's make this the vehicle of a modern culture. Let's develop the language and raise its status. And it became the vehicle of, an, of a nationalist movement. As I just mentioned, it became the vehicle of a modern press and a very sophisticated literature and theater And so Yiddish was unusual in a sense among Jewish vernacular languages in that uh, rather than just abandoning it, it, which was largely what happened in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, Jews really transformed it in new ways.
0: Mm -hmm. And so YIVO um, was thought by these Eastern European intellectuals, they wanted it to be the center of a transnational diasporic movement. What, What does that mean? And tell us, what is YIVO?
1: Well, YIVO is an acronym in Yiddish for the Yiddish words, Mm Yiddischer Wissenschaftler Institut, which means Yiddish Scientific Institute, scientific in the sense of, we might translate it in English as scholarly. That's the translation I would prefer. And it was envisioned as an institution devoted to scholarship in Yiddish and about the history and culture of Yiddish-speaking Jewry. And because Jews in the diaspora and Yiddish-speaking Jews in particular were, were spread out over such a wide territory, they didn't have institutions as a minority group. They didn't have political institutions uh, of their own. And as a group that was so widely dispersed, they didn't really have one focal point for their identity as a, um, as a national group, the way perhaps Zionists, even if they weren't living in the land of Israel, looked to, looked to the land of Israel as, as their center. So one of the things that I argue in my book is that one of the functions that YIVO performed was uh, a kind of besides its practice, the practical work it did, that it served in an important symbolic role as a kind of focal point for Jewish identity in the diaspora, particularly among Yiddish speaking Jews uh, that didn't really have one institution or a political body that really represented their their interests.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, scholarship or culture, more broadly, could serve as the unifier of all these Jews living around the world.
1: Well, that was really the vision that YIVO leaders tried to put forth. That when, even though YIVO was always a small institution that was devoted to collecting material that reflected the lives of Jews historically and also in the contemporary period, um, and also training scholars, training young scholars, and producing scholarship, publishing works of scholarship. Uh, It it also saw its its mission as speaking not only to a small group of intellectuals that would be interested in a scholarly article or monograph, let's say, but in representing the interests and the culture of all Yiddish-speaking Jews, which at this period we're talking about the period between the two world wars, YIVO was founded in 1925. Uh, it's estimated that, estimates vary, but it's estimated that there were about 11 million Yiddish speakers who at this point were living not only in various parts of Eastern Europe, but had also had large emigrate communities in the United States, in South America, in North Africa, excuse me, in South America, in, um, um, what did I mean to say, in South America, uh, in Palestine, in the Yishuv, and so forth, and so YIVO saw the Yiddish language and the study of the culture of Yiddish-speaking Jews as something that could unite all of these far-flung communities.
0: Mm-hmm. And so YIVO was sort of a research center, think tank, cultural center, all kind of rolled into one. How did the um, you know the people at YIVO deal with? Uh, whether their research should be politically informed or not? Because it seems like a research center, but also what you're describing seems like a political project.
1: Well, I do see it on one level as being very much a political project in that most of the founders and scholars associated with Evo were diaspora nationalists, and they saw Evo as a national institution in some ways, as I mentioned, as even a substitute for kind of political infrastructure for Yiddish-speaking Jews who they saw as a national group. Uh, At the same time, they always tried to keep their distance from a particular political party or movement. So at this period, the period between the two world wars, there were many streams of Jewish nationalism, Zionism and Diaspora nationalism. Of course, within each of those broad camps, there were There was left-wing Zionism, there was revisionist Zionism, and so forth. Uh, And then also, uh, communism was a large force on on the European stage and um, a subject of debate among Jews on the left. Were they pro-Soviet or anti-Soviet? And then these questions became even more pronounced after the rise of fascism in the 1930s and the question of uh, taking a political stance to perhaps unite the left in opposition to Hitler and so forth. So this was a time of very fierce political debates among various camps in Jewish Eastern Europe. And YIVO, there were certain supporters of YIVO who felt that that the Institute, even though it was a scholarly Institute, should take a particular political position uh, who believed that all scholarship was colored by ideology. This is the Marxist. A view, right? Uh, and so, therefore, Evo, even though it was a scholarly institution, should align itself openly with one or another political party or political direction. But the majority of Evo's leaders always felt that they didn't want to limit their audience or limit their focus by choosing an explicit political view. They saw their primary goal as serving the folk. This was the phrase that they used and by the folk or the people they meant and of the broad masses of ordinary yiddish speaking Jews of all backgrounds and classes and persuasions and they argued that choosing an explicit stance on these political questions would would alienate one or another segment of the Jewish public and that as scholars they needed to remain objective and neutral.
0: Mm-hmm. So take us through some of the chapters. You have five main chapters. In in chapter one, um, you look at early efforts in the 1910s to develop Yiddish scholarship. And this is sort of the the early beginnings of uh, Zomlin. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yes. So what's going on there?
1: Well, in the first chapter, I tried to talk about what we might call the prehistory of YIVO, uh, some of the strains in Jewish life beginning in the late 19th century that set the stage for creating an institution like YIVO. And this includes, as you mentioned, uh, zamlin, or collecting efforts, efforts to collect historical materials, folklore materials. Uh, This this derived in in part from uh, calls by uh, the historian Simon Dubnov, who was one of the intellectual godfathers of YIVO and himself, the leading theoretician of diaspora nationalism, Dubnov in the 1890s published a kind of appeal to the Jewish public saying, you know, East European Jews don't know much about their own history. And there's a lot of important historical materials that are just scattered and um, they're not accessible. They're not being protected. And we need to kind of protect our own heritage. Uh, And at the same time, there were efforts to collect and document folklore Uh, The writer and folklorist, uh, Shin Anski, who later became perhaps most famous as the author of the play The Dybbuk, led uh, expeditions to collect Jewish folklore throughout parts of the Pale of Settlement. Uh, And this was also sparked by a sense that as Jews were moving to larger cities and becoming more secular, aspects of their traditional way of life were being lost. And this... Sentiment paralleled what was going on among non-Jewish groups in Europe, of course, in a period of industrialization and modernization and so forth. So that was one stream of um, concern that led to the idea of YIVO as a a place that would collect uh, materials documenting Jewish life and preserve them in a central repository where they would be accessible to scholars and to students. And there are other movements as well, ideas about uh, fostering Yiddish research, Yiddish scholarship, uh, the idea of creating a national university in Yiddish, and also the importance of raising the respect for the Yiddish language, which I mentioned before, the idea that Yiddish should be researched and documented and that there should be an institute like something like the Académie Française for the French language that would both. Research the language and also have the authority to standardize it, because if the goal was to transform Yiddish from a vernacular that anyone could speak, you know, however they wished to something that was a language of culture, it would have to be kind of standardized in a, by an authoritative body.
0: The second chapter deals with the founding and early stages of Ivo. Uh, Nahum Stiff is not a household name, but should he be?
1: Well, I, uh, I have a kind of soft spot for Nachum Shteif, and I feel that he is perhaps underrated in uh, in the annals of Jewish scholarship. Um, he he did have a a somewhat tragic life. He's less well known than some of the other founders of YIVO that I also discuss in the early chapters, like Max Weinreich who went on to become really the leading intellectual figure at YIVO and the only one of its founders who survived the Second World War and went on to lead the organization in the United States. So he's deservedly better known. Uh, Stiff was the one who really came up with the idea of creating an institute for Yiddish scholarship and was very, very um, devoted to this idea and incredibly stubborn Uh, apparently a rather difficult person to get along with. He fought with many of his colleagues, but it was through his incredible uh, stubbornness and devotion and single mindedness that he really pushed to get an institute like this established Uh, in the years going back to the um, around the time of the 1905 revolution. He just kind of had this epiphany and decided he wanted to become a Yiddish scholar. And even though he had no job doing this. He had no steady income from it. He really uh, devoted himself to this, uh, to trying to make a career for himself and then to try to establish an institute like Evo. Uh, even though he, he himself was very poor and the instit- he had no funding at all for the institute at the time that he pushed to get it established. Uh, so one of the reasons I think he's not better known is because just as Evo was finally getting up and running as an institution in the spring of 1926. He was offered a job by the Soviet government-sponsored academy for Jewish research in Kiev, which seemed at the time like a dream come true for him. He was offered a secure post uh, with prestige, with a steady salary, at an institute recognized by a powerful government, and unfortunately the story of Soviet Yiddish culture turned out to be, in the end, a quite tragic one. So his career was cut short. Whereas if he had um, perhaps continued his work with YIVO, perhaps he'd be better known today. Ironically,
0: chapter three deals with some of the major academic projects uh, that YIVO undertook. What are some of the, the what do you think the main ones are?
1: Well, YIVO established first of all four research sections. The largest one was for philology, which dealt with language, literature, and folklore. There was also a historical section, an economic statistical section, and a psychological pedagogical section. So the latter two sections dealt with more contemporary problems facing Jews in the 1920s and 30s, like migration, employment patterns, the development of the Yiddish school system, which at the time was uh, a subject of great interest and a lot of um, energy was devoted to it by people trying to build secular Yiddish culture. Those areas of YIVO's work are perhaps less known today. Uh, probably its most important work was the work of the philological section, which was the largest, which produced a lot of research on the Yiddish language uh, and also collected a great deal of material on Yiddish folklore. Which, as I mentioned, was considered a, a key aspect of of culture because precisely because it was seen as dying out and it was threatened in the modern period. So Evo used this as a focus for many of its collecting or zombling projects to try to reach out to ordinary Jews to go out wherever they were living, collect folklore, and send the materials to To the YIVO headquarters which was established in the city of Vilna. So one way that these uh, scholarly projects were significant is that they also allowed YIVO to establish this connection to the so-called folk, to the common people uh, who might not you know come to YIVO to do research or might not read a scholarly publication but YIVO appealed to them to collect materials and to send them to YIVO and in this way ordinary Jewish men and women felt that they were participants in YIVO's work, so I see that as a very important aspect of what YIVO was doing, in addition to the purely intellectual accomplishments of its publications and so forth.
0: So YIVO was located in Vilna, right, which was sort of a the center of secular Yiddish learning. Uh, How close was YIVO to being established somewhere else?
1: It's interesting because YIVO. By the 1930s, and even today, YIVO has a very close connection to the city of Vilna. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, I was in Vilna, which today is Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, where there were events held to celebrate YIVO's 90th anniversary. So the connection between YIVO and the city of Vilna, Vilnius, uh, continues up until the present. So many people just assume that from the very beginning, Vilna was envisioned as the YIVO headquarters and the only place that the institute could be established. But in fact, when Schiff first put forth his plan for a Yiddish Institute, he envisioned the center as being in Berlin. That's where he was living at the time. There were many Russian Jewish emigres who had settled in Berlin after the Russian Revolution and Berlin was seen as a major capital of European culture and also a place where the local Jewish community, Was in the 1920s was relatively more affluent than Eastern Europe, which was quite a poor society. And it's interesting that the supporters of the institute in Vilna, like Max Weinreich and the linguist and editor Zalman Raisin, also originally agreed that the institute should be located in Berlin. Uh, This is somewhat counterintuitive, but I think one of the reasons is that Vilna was, as you mentioned, famous as a center of Jewish culture and Jewish scholarship, and in the interwar period, it became famous as perhaps the most important center of secular Yiddish culture, and particularly the Yiddish secular school system, which was most firmly established and largest had the largest enrollment in the city of Vilna. But at the, So that was the advantage of, of a location in Vilna, that YIVO would be part and eventually did become part of a whole network. Of Jewish institutions functioning in the Yiddish language. But I believe that one of the reasons originally many people were hesitant to establish the institute in Vilna is that it was such a poor city and people there were already committed to such a wide variety of projects. They couldn't imagine how they could also undertake to support and build an academy for Yiddish scholarship on top of everything else that they were already building in the city. So it's interesting that there were these reservations, which continued for quite some time, but nevertheless, Vilna did become the place where YIVO established its headquarters, even though it also had branches throughout the world in keeping with the vision of the Institute as really reaching out to, to all areas of the Jewish diaspora. hmm
0: and so tell us what happens, uh, the, you know, the story of Chapter 5, what happens in the 1930s, and give us a little preview about um, the post-war move to New York.
1: Well, in the 1930s, as I mentioned, political pressures really increased. First of all, there is the impact of the, of the economic crash that, of course, starts in New York in 1929 and then spreads to Europe. So the funding for the Institute, which is always very shaky, uh, really uh, kind of bottoms out uh, by the early 1930s. And then in addition to this economic crisis, there's a rising of political crisis after Hitler comes to power and after the movement, the rightward, rightward movement of the government in Poland, where Evo's headquarters is located in this period. Vilna is is within the borders of Poland. So under these pressures, YIVO faces more um, pressure from some of its supporters to try to take a stand on the question of um, openly aligning with other groups on the left in the fight against fascism, for example. But at the same time, there's also new intellectual trends that are introduced into YIVO's work, and these are largely the result of Max Weinreich and his new interests. Weinreich spent time at Yale University and in Vienna, and he returns to Vilna with a renewed interest, a growing interest in the social sciences and disciplines like psychology and anthropology and sociology, and he establishes a new division of Ivo's work, the Division of Youth Research, which uh, solicits autobiographies of Jewish youth and adolescents, which become a very important... collection within YIVO. Uh, So there's new intellectual trends there. YIVO finally in the 1930s establishes a program to train the equivalent of graduate students. So trying to create a new generation of Yiddish scholars. So it responds to these worsening political and economic conditions with I think a remarkable amount of intellectual energy and produces some of its most important work even in these very challenging conditions, perhaps even because of the challenges, because up until the outbreak of the Second World War, YIVO scholars always argued that in difficult times, in times of intense political pressure, scholarship that can analyze the situation, the predicament that Jews are facing was more important than ever. Um, And these principles have continued to guide Uh, The work of YIVO's leaders after the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, This is a complex story. I'm not sure how much time uh, you would like me to, how much detail you'd like me to go in now, how much time we have. But uh,
0: yeah. 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 Just maybe tell us what YIVO is today.
1: Well, uh, YIVO relocates to New York in 1940. YIVO had a branch in New York starting in 1925. And then after. Uh The outbreak of the Second World War, Vilna changes hands several times, but uh not to go into all the details in nineteen forty The New York branch is declared the temporary headquarters of the institute uh It later becomes the permanent headquarters, and as I mentioned, Weinreich is able to escape to New York and leads the institute in New York in the post war period up until his death. Um, and Evo continues its work. From that time up until today, in New York, uh, today it's um, as it was, It's the largest, the world's largest collection of materials in the Yiddish language and about East European Jewish history and culture. So it's still today a major research center that brings scholars from all over the world to consult its collections. And just uh, within the last few years, uh, it began a major project to uh, preserve some of its materials that remained in Vilna during the Second World War and that were believed destroyed, material that was a great deal of Evo's material was destroyed under the Nazis, uh, and then later there were, uh, most of the remaining material was believed to have been destroyed under the Soviets. And it's only within the last few years that EVO has um, begun a project to try to preserve the materials that were were discovered really with the end of the Soviet Union and the period of perestroika it became known that a lot of YIVO materials that scholars had believed had been destroyed under the Soviets if not the Nazis were in fact still there in in today's Vilnius and YIVO is still in the process now of trying to preserve those materials and make them accessible to scholars so YIVO continues its work in New York I would say with more of a focus on um, serving as a center of of, um, research in the sense of of being a library and archive that scholars come to consult, not so much producing its own original research, but it also offers fellowships for scholars to come and use its collections and offers a variety of classes and so forth.
0: Well, Cecile, we've taken a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share and what are you working on next?
1: Well, um, right now I'm returning to a longstanding interest that I have in architecture and urban history. Uh, Actually, before I even wrote this book on Evo, I uh, did some research on the city of Vilna and its Jewish neighborhoods, its Jewish institutions, where they were located and how they developed over time. So I'm returning to some of those interests and looking at other cities as well. And I hope to continue also to combine that with my interest in Yiddish culture, uh, because I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I hope people will take away from, from my book is that we have today in the United States a lot of stereotypes about Yiddish, but, uh, not everyone is aware that Yiddish is also the vehicle of a very sophisticated modern culture that Offered Jews in the diaspora a kind of vision of what it meant to be a modern, you know, culturally engaged Jew that wasn't necessarily focused around around Israel. And so, in that sense, I hope it's relevant to to readers today, um, even if they don't know Yiddish. Perhaps they'll be uh, inspired to learn some Yiddish. <laughs> that would that would be a nice outcome too, from my point of view.
0: It sure would. Uh, well, Cecile, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is YIVO and the Making of Modern Jewish Culture, Scholarship for the Yiddish Nation. The author is Cecile Kuznitz. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email New books in jewish studies at gmail dot com. We'll see you next time.